Hey everybody, my name is Chris, the lead pastor here, and I am really thankful to be with you uh, today in God's house. I want to uh, share one brief announcement. Uh, vestry nominations are open right now in the life of our church every year. Uh, we have a number of vestry members roll off and then a number that come on. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a vestry is, it's our governing board within the Anglican tradition. We have 12 women and men on our team, and it's an unbelievably wonderful group of people. Uh, I, I, we meet monthly, and it's one of the highlights of my, of my month. I, just to be in a space where we pray and we laugh and we wrestle through the life of the church, it's just beautiful. And uh, we got five spots coming up. And so if you yourself or someone you know is interested in serving on the vestry, visit our website uh, and you can nominate yourself. That's not bad. People feel like that's bad. This is not homecoming court. If you feel like you, you have the gifting and the interest and the talent to, to serve in this way, nominate yourself. If you know someone who you believe would be good at this, who's also a member of the church, uh, nominate them. Uh, you can go to our website. I think it's very easy to find it. Uh, we're going to have a window open for another week or so, and then we're going to go through a process of nominations and selections, and I'm just really, really hopeful uh, for, for where our, um, our vestry is headed. It's amazing. And if you are uh, privileged to be selected for this, uh, we literally at the end, after a vetting process, put names in a hat and draw names out of a hat. Um, if the disciples cast lots to replace Judas, we figure pulling names out of a hat is good enough for us. And so there's a sense of randomization. If you are picked, I think you'll be, um, it'll just be a good three years for you. So I hope you'll, you'll consider serving if you're a member of the church and have the interest and appetite. Tomorrow's MLK Day. Uh, a lot of you probably have your day off, or um, I, I hope you do anyway. Um, Adrian and Brad and myself, we're a part of a group um, run by an organization called One Race, where we get together monthly with uh, white and black and brown pastors and leaders on the west side. And we were all together for a couple of hours at Victory Midtown, which is just right down the road, pastored by uh, Pastor Mo, who is becoming a, a good friend. And to share space for two hours with leaders um, in this area across a, a wide spectrum of denomination and racial experiences has just been such a life-giving and uh, illuminating and hope-inducing experience. And I think it's really important for you to know that our God cares a great deal about reconciliation. And one of our core commitments is to make space for meaningful and reconciled relationships. And that's true like in your marriage and in your friendship, but it's also true when we look at giant, broken places in our world. Uh, Martin Luther King said that uh, Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in America. He said that many, many years ago. It's still true today. And I can say on a very personal level, um, it's overwhelming to think about what healing looks like when there's so much brokenness. And I, um, I guess I'm about as white as it comes, you know, um, raised by hippies named after Chris Christopherson. Like it just doesn't get whiter than that. Um, <laughs> And what happens sometimes is that when we experience and see the brokenness in the world, the bigger it is, the more overwhelming it can feel. And I, I stand before you and confess that I feel totally overwhelmed by all the brokenness in our world. And as it relates to the brokenness regarding race in Atlanta, it's an overwhelming thing. 
But there's something so clarifying about stepping into a small room with like 10 other people and all of a sudden it goes from just being an idea that's too much to being people that you can actually get to know you can learn their stories and you know as a white man um, I have so so much to learn so much that I don't even know and even hearing this week about the experiences of like one of our um, group members has a son who goes to university and he said like every time my son gets in the car to go down to South Georgia I tell him like drive very close to the speed limit keep your hands on the steering wheel these are things that I've never had to tell my son when he headed to Athens and just to learn about the reality that people in our city that we love that are a part of the kingdom of God have to live with people in this room experience on a daily basis is um, a beautiful opportunity. We can't make reconciliation happen. You can't make it happen in a marriage or in a friendship. You certainly can't make it happen when it comes to issues of justice or gender. But what we can all do is make space. And I just want to call you to make space. And when we make space, we're just quite literally creating space. For me, sometimes making that space is right now just sharing space in a room for a couple of hours every few weeks with people that I'm getting to know to humanize the conversation around reconciliation in all of its facets. And I just want to say one of the ways that we can honor Dr. King is to make space. And so I just want to call you to think about that, pray about that, and to see what the Lord would have you to do. Um, and it could just start tomorrow to just Google and look up and hold uh, King's Tenets of Nonviolent Resistance. They're amazing. If you're experiencing brokenness around your dining room table, uh, if you've just suffered as a result of like making it through Christmas and the new year with family and conversations were fraught, Dr. King's The Tenets of Nonviolent Resistance, um, it's, there's some power there that actually would help us to be better human beings. And as we move toward another election cycle, God have mercy on us. May he make us um, curious committed people who um, decide that we're going to move with the grain of the universe. Justice is the way God made the world. And may it be so for us. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 1. That, that was free. This one's also free. Um, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask you to help us to 
see Jesus today and to see Philip and to see Nathaniel and in seeing Philip and Nathaniel, we pray that you would help us to see us. God, I, th- I really believe that the gospels are all about us seeing you, Jesus, and then also in seeing you, we learn to see ourselves in the right way, in the truest way. And I pray, God, that that would happen today, that we would see Jesus and we would see us. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this encounter with these two ordinary guys. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a few things. Number one, I think we just have to ask the question, like, what is it about Jesus? Um, He hasn't preached. There are no miracles so far in John's gospel. Uh, Jesus has not done a lot of the external stuff. And so it's really good to wonder, like, why would Philip and Nathaniel follow him? Um, actually, I think something really important to know about Philip specifically, uh, he's the only person in John's gospel who was named and sought out by Jesus first. Uh, so we hear a lot in the Bible around, you know, seek God, seek Jesus. Well, here Jesus seeks out Philip and he calls him by name. He, he, he wants to be with him. And I was thinking about Philip and I'm like, whoa, this guy must have been, you know, amazing. And then when I started reading about him in commentaries, Leon Morris, who's one of my favorite um, scholars, says that the only mentions of Philip in the Gospels paint a picture of him being kind of out of his element and a bit overwhelmed. Like Philip doesn't get tons of great press. Uh, He's usually confused. He's usually a bit overmatched by the moment, which would indicate that Jesus is seeking out and pursuing a pretty ordinary guy. Like if you were going to put the disciples on a continuum relative to their capacity, Philip would probably be on the lower end of that continuum. So today, if you feel like a pretty normal person, if you feel not like a superstar, you feel like someone who can sometimes be a bit overwhelmed and overmatched by the moment, Jesus seeks us out, not just the sparkly people out. And that's really, really good news. And I've wondered, like, what was it? Like, what was going on? Why would Philip say yes? He didn't know where Jesus was going to lead him. Certainly didn't have an inkling. I don't think of the cross or the resurrection. He didn't even know what kind of, like, obedience he'd be called into. And yet he says yes. And I was thinking about this. And then I was reading Leslie Newbigin, who's one of my favorite uh, Christian missiologists, a person who cares a great deal about missions, written a lot there. He says the disciples including Philip, were drawn to Jesus by an inner necessity. It was like there was something deep inside Philip. And I think Nathaniel too. We're going to reflect on Nathaniel in a minute. But in Philip, something deep that was stirred when Jesus approached him. And I feel like I can identify with this. Uh, There were so many times where I said yes to something connected to God and didn't fully understand it. I think if we fully understood all the fine print, we would be less likely to say yes to all kinds of things. And yet there was something in Philip down here in his gut that pulled him in. And maybe you're in that space today. Maybe you're, you're struggling in faith and yet something pulled you in. You felt an inner necessity, as, as Newbegin would call it, And I just want to say, like, bear witness to that inner necessity. Honor it, even if you've got lots and lots of questions. So what happens next? Philip 
is moved. He says yes to following Jesus, and then convinced, he goes and finds his buddy Nathaniel. And I love this because Philip's not an expert. Philip doesn't memorize a sermon. Philip doesn't take an apologetics class. He doesn't think, I got to get my ducks in a row before I go talk to anyone about this. He just looks at a buddy and he says, come and see. Like, those three words are the best because you don't have to be an expert to say, come and see. You don't have to argue people into faith to say, come and see. You just have to invite them. Our, our second core commitment is invite people into friendship with Jesus. It's not about argue people into friendship with Jesus, reason people into friendship with Jesus. It's if something has happened in you, even if you don't fully understand it, there's an opportunity to say to a friend, come and check this out. We're, we're at, we have Alpha coming up in just a couple of weeks, a few weeks. Um, Alpha at this church is... Um, Alpha, the alphabet, Alpha beginning, it's a place where we gather, a few of us on staff, Adrian and Katie, myself will be here, and we, we speak about the very basics of faith in a non-threatening, non-manipulative environment where there's lots of room for discussion, we feed people, we have beer, it's just good. If you're in a place of wondering about faith, I just want to say to you, come and see. We'll be there. It'll be fun. And you may not even agree with it, but you'll have an opportunity to hear in what I believe is a safe and non-manipulative, warm environment what it is that Christians believe, what it is that our faith is about. Similarly, if you are a person in this room and you um, know people in that space, I just want to encourage you to go grab these flyers. They're right outside our exits and invite a friend. Say to a friend, come and see. Actually, the only way if you're a solid Christian that you get to come is if you bring someone. If you're, a, if you're in and you know all the lingo and you're all, all about it and there's not a lot of doubt going on in your life, go to one of our three studies that are starting in the next few weeks because you'll just, you'll ruin it because you'll <laughs> talk too much like a Christian in the groups. But if you bring a friend that's in a place of doubt, you'll probably behave yourself so you can come. Um, but I just want to say that when Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see, all he was doing was saying, like, I just think this is worth exploring. And I just want to say to you, I think this is worth exploring. I believe Jesus has something to say about our lives, about the lived experience that each of us uh, encounter each and every day. And I, I want to make space for that. We want to make space for that. So be courageous. Take a step. Come and see. Third, his buddy is skeptical. I mean, he actually says, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, Nazareth's just this, like, redneck town, you know? He's like, nothing good can come from there. It's like saying, can anything good come from Gainesville, Florida, or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or, I mean, you know, just insert any number of places he just I'm looking at you Jenny I I got Florida vestry representation over here and probably a little bit of Alabama I'm really sad for you guys about the Nick Saban thing I hate I hate it for for you people it's breaking it broke my heart I have to say go dogs Nathaniel's like I don't know about this and Jesus doesn't shame him. Jesus doesn't say, boy, weren't you raised better or get your act together. He doesn't shut down that place of skepticism. 
You know, what I would like to do is I would like to ask you and have a, a show of hands, who in this room is wrestling with doubt? But that would make you uncomfortable. My prayer is that we would get to a point one day where it wouldn't make us uncomfortable to acknowledge the places of doubt that we all have. One of the things that I love about Jesus' response to Nathaniel's skepticism is Nathaniel, he looks at Nathaniel and he's like, here's a true Israelite. There's nothing fake about this guy, nothing false about this guy. And I'll tell you why I think Jesus said that. I think there were two reasons for that. But just to start with, doubt doesn't disqualify you. There are parts of me that doubt. C.S. Lewis said that after he became a Christian, there were moments where he would lay awake in his bed and think, did I, just, did I make all of this up? And then he said in mere Christianity, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Even atheists have doubts. It's the nature of the human soul to, to experience doubt, to experience uncertainty, skepticism, Sometimes skepticism is a necessary starting point. And I just want to say to you, Jesus is not, if he is who I believe he is, he is not afraid of our doubt. He is not intimidated or put off by our skepticism. And so today, if you find yourself doubting, you're in pretty good company. And I just want to say what I believe is so important for all of us to hear I believe that if we would be the kind of people who would be more open to acknowledging the places of vulnerability and uncertainty, the places of skepticism, I think our faith would become more durable, actually. Oftentimes we button that kind of stuff up because we're afraid, you know, we, we've been taught some version of like fake it till you make it, you know, pretend you've got it together and maybe one day you'll have it together. Some of you were raised too Southern, you know, just act nice. And so what happens is, is these things that we, we wrestle with, these, these like really these Nathaniel things, they just get pushed into subterranean places. And oftentimes, I just want to say that Jesus wants to meet you and he wants to show himself to us. He wants to heal us and he wants to draw us. But if we go walls up, uh, I think we miss sometimes the movement of God toward us. And I was wondering in my own mind, like, what was going on maybe with Nathaniel? We, we don't know much. I mean, neither Philip nor Nathaniel are named a great deal in the, in the New Testament. They, they don't, they're not stars among the disciples. And I, I'm thinking, like, what, what was going on? And here's what I, what I know. Despite his skeptical feelings, he responds by moving toward Jesus to, to, the, to the invitation, come and see, he, he decides to come and see. He moves in his, in his doubt. And that's where that kind of movement, that like unstuckness in doubt is actually what, one of the things I think the Lord calls us to. That's very different, distinct from the kind of deconstruction where I retreat back in. I want to get in an echo chamber and hear people who are just as angsty as me and I don't, I'm not willing to, to move and inquire for Nathaniel, he's willing to move. He's willing to inquire even as he names his own doubts. 
And my gut tells me, I can't prove this. It's, it's not in the text, but my gut tells me that Nathaniel had run into some of his own limitations. I actually think that's what he was doing under the tree. And we're going to get to that in a second. I think that there were some parts of Nathaniel that were thinking like, I don't know if I can do what, I don't know if I can live the life I want to live apart from some help without, from without. I think he had hit some walls. And rather than turning inward, rather than allowing cynicism to carry the day, when he hit some walls, I think there was a sense of openness and a sense of curiosity. And the reason why I think we know that is that when Nathaniel is moving toward Jesus, and that was both literal, right? Like he's like walking with Philip and moving toward Jesus. I also think there was something symbolic. He's, he's moving in his doubt, in his skepticism. And when he sees him, Jesus says, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And there's one translation that says, in whom there is no Jacob. And I love that because Jesus references Jacob's ladder at the very end of this text. And we're going to think about that together in a few moments. And so what I'm imagining here is that Jesus is looking at Nathaniel and he's saying essentially two things. I like that you're honest and straightforward. And I like that you're willing to come and talk to me even when you are experiencing doubt and skepticism. He's not only honest, he's willing to come and see. He's willing to inquire and I want to say to you that if you are in a place of doubt, if you are in a place of some kind of deconstruction or some kind of emerging cynicism, be honest about it. And I want to exhort you to be willing to move forward. I want to exhort you to be curious, to be engaged, to ask the question, would God have something to say about my life if he had something to say at all? He moves. And Jesus looks at him after saying there's no Jacob in you. And you all know the story of Jacob, right? He was a trickster. The word Jacob means trickster. He was a little brother that stole the birthright from his older brother. His, uh, his older brother wanted to murder him. Uh, Jacob was like a tricky conniver, a kind of get things done, a work the system, a get, get your way at all costs. And so basically Jesus is looking at this guy and he's saying, you're not like that. You're willing to move even in your doubt. And then Jesus looks at him. The third thing we see in this passage, he says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And I've always thought like, that's weird. Like, was Jesus following him around? Like, ooh, I saw you. I was watching you earlier in the day. I don't think that's actually what was happening. In the ancient world, fig trees were, were seen to be and known to be sacred places. So St. Augustine in his ancient uh, book the confessions of Augustine he was sitting under a fig tree when God turned up uh, Jews sometimes would sit under fig trees they believed they were holy places they were places to pray so when Jesus said I saw you under the fig tree here's what I think was happening I think what Jesus is saying is I know you I have seen you as you have wrestled with and asked for some sort of help as you face your own stuff and your own limitations I think Nathaniel had been sitting under a tree. The reason why he can quote unquote convert so quickly is that he feels seen. He feels known. And probably he feels seen and known as he verbalized something like, God, would you help me? I don't have all that I need in order to be who I want to be. I, I can't prove that. But the flow of this text would strongly suggest that Nathaniel was sitting under a tree and saying some pretty 
honest things before God. And he thought he was totally unknown. And Jesus looks at him and he says, I, I see you. I saw you in that place of vulnerability. What would life be like? What would happen if we felt seen by God in moments of vulnerability? There's something about Jesus looking at Nathaniel and saying, I know that place in you. I see you. I just, you know, one of the things when you go through um, an ordeal of any kind, you know, whether it's a physical ordeal or a relational ordeal or a spiritual ordeal, is that we, we always want to just hope for it all. When is it going to be over? <laughs> I was talking to somebody just, just today, and he's like, when is this going to be over? And I was like, this ain't going to be over. We're always walking down a pathway um, in the resurrection, maybe, whatever that ordeal will be, will be over. But God seeing us in our vulnerability gives us and can give us a sense of confidence to be more honest and more solicitous of the presence and the reality of God, more desirous to see God work. I feel as vulnerable as I ever have. And, and that doesn't mostly feel great. It's like, I just want to, just when's this going to be over? And maybe you're there too. Maybe that's part of where you are right now. God comes to us in our vulnerability, in our limpiness. I mean, Jacob, he was wounded by God and he limped for the rest of his life. I mean, we're told at the very end of Jacob's life, he was leaning on a cane. He, he didn't walk the same. And, and there's a part of me that is beginning to make friends with the fact that this is God's way of meeting us in our vulnerability. It, that doesn't just resolve itself because we never cease to be vulnerable. We never cease to need to know that we're seen and known and loved by God. But it doesn't end there. Jesus tells uh, one last thing. He says, I'm, I'm the new ladder. I'm the new Jacob's ladder. And if you're familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder, it's an amazing story because Jacob was, as I said a few minutes ago, a swindler. He was a, a bit of a cheat. He was tricky. And his family member, I think it was his mom, told him, your brother's trying to kill you, so you need to get out of town. And he leaves town. And then he ends up in this place where he has an open vision and he sees a ladder uh, between heaven and earth and angels coming down. So like a point of access, like where what, what's happening in God's world all of a sudden can happen in, in this world. And this is a vision of interconnectedness of God's world and his world coming together of a guy who really needed to hear that. Like he was a mess. He had made a mess of things. And he takes a rock and he pours oil on it. And he calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. Well, now Jesus is saying, I'm the new Bethel. I'm the house of God. I'm the place where what's happening in God's world can intersect with what's happening in our world. So I just believe that Jesus wants you and me to hear this. If you are with him, you have access to what's happening in God's world, that God can bring his work to bear in your life. Maybe especially in the places that feel vulnerable, that feel fragile, that feel hard. That God has something to say about your life and mine, our lived experience. So here are the questions I want us to hold. 
here at the end. Where do we need that? What part of your life would benefit from an infusion of what's happening in God's world where some help would come down the ladder, if you will? Are you aware of the places where you need his help? I would encourage you, we're going to hold these questions for a few moments, but I would encourage you to take your phone out and take a picture. Um, I'm just on a full-on journaling campaign. I want our church to start journaling because I believe that questions like this can't be answered in two minutes. I think you need time. I need time. So holding something as you walk through your week, I think, is a really important way to take what happens in this space and really hold it and ask God for for insight, for help, for transformation. So we're going to be quiet for a few moments as we begin to consider this. And then we're going to come to the communion table. But first, let's be still. Where would you benefit from this God's world coming into your world? Where do you have need? Let's name our need before God with as much specificity and courage as we can muster. Let's be still for a few moments and then we'll come to this table together.